Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. We have a special Encore presentation from 2021 and the great podcast we have with Chris Willis celebrating Joe Carr on his birthday of October 23rd. Hope you enjoy this little podcast we had from last year and the best of the Pigskin Dispatch. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. When we have the opportunity, we love to celebrate the great people of the game of football. And we have that opportunity today because we are celebrating the birth of one of pro football's pioneers, and that's Joe Carr. And we have an author, uh, our good friend that's been on the program before, Chris Willis of NFL Films, who's actually wrote a couple books about uh, Joe Carr. Uh, he has the Columbus Panhandles, which we've talked about when we talked about the team. And he has a book uh, specifically on Joe Carr, uh, the man that built the National Football League. And we'll bring him in right now. Chris Willis, welcome back to the Pigpen. Uh, thanks for having me, Darren. Uh, glad to be back to talk a little bit about Joe Carr. Yeah, he is uh, quite the interesting figure. And really, a lot of people nowadays don't really know much about him, but he is such a pivotal person. And uh, just really, you can appreciate that once you you read your books on him. And I'm glad that you were able to join us today to, to share uh, Joe's story and tell us a little bit about it. And of course, you know, people make sure you, you get get a copy of the book and read it. And uh, if you could share that that title officially, because I probably butchered it in the intro, Chris, if you could. No, it's Joe Carr, the man who built the National Football League. Okay. I, I paraphrased it close. I'm, I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. All right. Well, where do we begin with uh, Joe Carr and his football journey? Yeah, I mean, if you talk about Joe Carr, you know, you have to talk about Columbus, Ohio. Uh, that's where he was born, you know, like we said, on October 23rd, 1879. And that's where he sort of fell in love with sports. You know, he was not a very big man. You know, probably wasn't more than five, you know, he was in the 5'8", five, 5'9", five, about 160, 70 pounds. You know, he was kind of, a, you know, a light Irishman <laughs> at the time. But he just loved sports and, and, and doing research on his early life. You know, I've always was fascinated to find that sort of he was even from a young age, you know, he says, you know, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, he was organizing the games in, in his Irish neighborhood, you know, I mean, with the other kids, you know, he, especially baseball, you know, he's, you know, establishing the rules and breaking, you know, picking the teams. So for a kid who, you know, really wasn't, you know, a, pr- a predominant athlete or, you know, had the physical stature of being, oh, wow, this guy's going to be a really good athlete. 
he was sort of a, a sort of a born organizer and that started in Columbus in the neighborhood. And then it developed into, um, you know, he became a sports writer for the high state journal turn of the century in, in 1900. And then uh, through his employment through the Pennsylvania railroad, you know, we talked a little bit uh, in previous episodes on the Columbus panhandles, he became the team manager, you know, so he didn't play, but he managed the team. He got him to games. He organized games. He did the publicities, you know, team photos, got to travel, you know, to team together and stuff like that. And, and uh, so through those sort of um, avenues, you know, like, you know, whether it was sports writing, being a team manager, and then being uh, a leading team manager for, for early pro football, you know, that sort of got him his juice flowing to wanting to be involved in the sport. You know, he was also a baseball executive and a basketball executive, you know, through the 1910s and 1920s, but it was always football was his first love. You know, he wanted, I think, those other sports were kind of established, especially baseball was already established. They had a lot of leaders and he always thought football needed more leadership. And, and that sort of got him started being this sort of born organizer. And it paid off because he was NFL president, you know, for almost two decades, for almost 20 years. And all these sort of things that he went through and experienced, you know, whether sports writing, you know, through team manager, through you know publicity, you know, organizing, you know, the Columbus Panhandles, all sort of, the NFL was a benefactor. I, I, you know, there's no doubt about that. When you read the history and the things that the league did in the 20s and 30s, it was because of Joe Carr's leadership. Chris, in your book, uh, it takes us to an, an interesting point, sort of the end of the summer of, of 1920. And we had a couple pivotal meetings uh, that established the, the APFC, the APFA, the NFL uh, it's kind of kind of gray there. They change uh, so often in that, that time period, and then that, that was a couple of years. But um, in your book, you talk about that first meeting, August twentieth of nineteen twenty, where sort of the uh, we'll call them the 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 big four, I guess, of Ohio uh, pro football teams joined. And you said that the car was not, and the Panhandles were not in, involved in that. Was there like a specific reason that? Uh, that they weren't, were they just, you know, shunned for you know, personal reasons or something? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting sort of, sort of backstory to, to sort of the formation of, of the national football league. Uh, um, I mean, one thing in my research that I found was unique. We can even go back. Carr always wanted a league to be formed. You know, you know, there were some rumblings in, in 1916, 1917, but you know, that was before the war hit. Then those things were put on back burner, and then when they came back from the war, nineteen nineteen, they were starting to, you know, think about it again. And obviously in nineteen twenty, but in my research, I found an article in January nineteen twenty, where Carr visited a baseball promoter in Martin's Ferry, John Maloney. In the articles that was in a couple of Ohio newspapers, talked about a pro league being maybe formed that fall. I mean, this is January nineteen twenty. This is almost seven months before the actual meetings to form the NFL. So it was always on Carr's mind to, to be involved with pro football and be there at the beginning, you know, especially an organized sport, because that's where it needed. You know, baseball was organized. You know, some of the other sports were organized. Well, football wasn't quite at that level until 1920, you know. And uh, my only sort of uh, uh, um, sort of opinion with this, that once they got to August, you know, like I said, he was involved in, in baseball during the spring and summer. So I think that took the backbone. He, he was be involved as an executive in minor league baseball at the time. So when the sport was starting to form in, in, in August, this sort of kick, hey, well, here's going to be the fall season. Do we want to start a league? Like you said, the big four, I think it was Kent, Akron, Dayton, and Cleveland 
uh, that were starting to form, you know, um, the, this, this sort of league, Columbus was left out. And my only guess is at the time, the Camp Bulldogs were the best team in pro football. And they were operated, owned and operated by a guy named Ralph Hay, you know, who owned a, a homobile and a, a dealership there in Canton. And he had the best team. He had Jim Thorpe. He had the best player and the best team, you know, heading into 1920. So he was going to be at the forefront. Well, in 1919, the Columbus Panhandles played the Canton Bulldogs and the Columbus Panhandles were at the end of their run. You know, they had played for 20 years. The Nesser brothers were on that team, the six famous Nesser brothers. Well, they're all getting late thirties, you know, even 40 years old. Well, they played and the Bulldogs destroyed the Panhandles and I think only like 2,000 people showed up. So it was a really weak gate for Ralph Hay. I don't think he was happy about that. This is my only opinion. Like I said, I'm not sure if this was – but I think there was a little bit of an icy relationship because after that, they did not play for the next couple of years. Like no Columbus team, or at least the Panhandles did not play in 20, 21, 22. They did not play the Canton Bulldogs. So my, my thought was – maybe Ralph and Joe like said, Oh, he tossed me a gate. We could have, we could have gotten another team in here and I could have made more money because he was just, you know, the Canton Bulldogs were a high profile, high payroll team at that time. So if only 2000 fans showed up, he probably lost money on that game. He's like, well, and the score was very high. You know, it was probably like 40 to seven. Like it was not the Panhandle's most shiny moment. So, so that's, that was my opinion. Like I say, cause when 1920, started the, the panhandles became one of the original 14 nfl teams although they were not there at the the, the two main meetings in august and september they they did play a schedule of all those teams except for camp you know they played akron they played dayton so they played all the other teams so it wasn't like they were left out of the schedule so that's my only sort of thought is that Maybe the you know because Ralph was setting up these two meetings that Joe and them might not have seen eye to eye uh, um, in the way to sort of get it organized. You know. Yeah, I, I thought there must be something because at first I thought, well, maybe it was like geographical thing because you got you know Akron and Massillon and Canton, they're all sort of Cleveland, they're all they're you know close together. But then I sit down and say, well, Dayton's invited. That's you know the completely other side of the state. Columbus is much closer yeah. than Dayton is. And then I said, well, maybe there had to be something. So okay, I'm glad you explained that. That's uh, that's interesting. So losing uh, some gate fee from a, a bad performance by uh, the Panhandles and. Uh, lack of interest, I guess, from the fans in Canton to come watch them play. So, all right. Uh, so he, he didn't attend the, the famous September 17th meeting. Also, that was also at the Hutmobile showroom. But So how did he and the Panhandles get involved in, in the uh, APFA at that point? Well, I think it was more the fact that the, at that time, the old so-called Ohio League was the best teams in, in pro football, you know. And Columbus was still – they had been around for 20 years. So they weren't totally left out. Like I said, they were kind of sort of at the end of their rung. They weren't quite as good just because like I said, the Nestles were getting old, but they were still a, a, you know, a team that most teams still wanted to play. Like I said, they played Dayton, they played back, you know, they played some of the other better teams. So they just, like I said, Joe Carr just didn't make it to the meeting, but the team was still good enough to be like, Hey, we need, we need teams, you know um, you know, I mean, George house has got the famous quote, teams were supposed to pay $50 to get into the league. You know, most, he said, most teams didn't pay it, but you know, they were supposed to be this sort of facade of 
hey, if we're going to establish the league, we need the best teams. And Columbus, although, like I said, they were probably over the hill, still had cachet with the Nessers that they could, you know, you know, be a sort of, you know, a, a team that you would want to include in the league. So, um, uh, so at the end of the day, like I said, there was only 10 teams at the September 17th meeting in Canton, but 14 are really considered a charter members of, of what would be become the NFL. Do you think maybe some of it uh, possibly too could also be, now I know, uh, like I know Al Nesser had left the, the Panhandles at that point, and I believe he might have been with Canton or Akron uh, for that initial year. Yeah, yeah. well, league. Al was the youngest of the six brothers, so he was still a little bit in his prime. He played for Akron in that first season and helped the pros win the the first NFL championship with Fritz Pollard um, in 1920. And I think weren't, weren't a couple of the other brothers still playing for the Panhandles that first season too. And I there was, maybe... there was like three of them that were still there in 1920. So, yeah. okay. So I was thinking maybe that connection too. just, Hey, you know, Hey guys, you want you know get a team together. We're having a good thing going here. You know, I'm with Akron now, but Hey, you know, we know Cobos can still be a good team and can be competitive in a certain, you know, maybe something like that. Some family tie, <laughs> who knows? Panhandles and, and Joe Carr are, you know, having some, uh, some, they're in the, the APFA, uh, eventually the NFL. Now, how does he, Joe Carr, end up be getting, getting the, uh, the highest uh, position in the young league at, at some point? I mean, that's a good, that's a good story. Uh, but, like I mentioned before, Joe was a born organizer and he was very interested in the future of pro football. He could see it being as big as major league baseball. There's several quotes that you found in newspapers where he thought that pro football, even this is in the 1920s, that pro football would be bigger than major league baseball, which at the time, like baseball was, was the most popular sport, you know, with Babe Ruth in the 1920s and stuff. So, um, so after that first year in 1920, yeah, the APFA actually had Jim Thorpe as its president. He was the biggest name in football, but he was not an administrator. And they knew that, you know, the first year there was no standings. There was no rule, you know, real rules and regulations that were supposed to be established that never got done. So, the, you know, uh, there was no league off. Like there was nothing that was actually done in 1920, except that they played games and Akron pros went unbeaten and they were, um, in April of 1921, they were voted the champions, you know, um, of the, of the league, you know, so, but a lot of the owners were just, you know, just, you know, just you know, had sat dissatisfaction to the league. There was nothing being done. Is this really going to happen? Like they, you know, they were losing money. So in April of 1921 in Akron, they had the league meetings and Joe Carr, you know, actually was there this time. He actually, you know, you know, he made the trip there. You know, his panhandles were in the league, and he was the one that sort of voiced his opinion that we need to keep with this. We just need better leadership. Pro football is going to have a great future. It's going to be one of the biggest sports in this country. It's going to be just as big as Major League Baseball. So he gives this, supposedly gives this big spiel of what the future of pro football is like. And everybody, all the owners were on board. And they kind of knew they they had the right man for the job of, of president, you know. So uh, so when they had their uh, election, he he came he came up. Uh, I think there was a quote that says he was elected when he was out of the room against his will. But uh, I just think that made for a good quote because he he definitely wanted the job, you know, and he wanted to to guide pro football. And so since 
you know, started in April 21. That's how he became the president of, of what would become the NFL, you know, when they changed the, the league name in 1922. Well, I mean, what, what brave foresight that he had to say that it was going to become, you know, as big as baseball or one of the major sports, because it wasn't even the, the largest form of uh, most popular form of football at that time. It was, you know, the college game was much more popular than the pro game when, uh, in that, that era. So, wow, that is uh really quite a jo- great job of a uh, Nostradamusing that one. <laughs> yeah, it, it was tremendous. Like, and, and it was in several newspaper quotes. This wasn't just, you know, you know, this was, you know, he even started in the twenties and then you saw it in the thirties when, when the NFL and the NFL, like they said, was still, you know, you know, sixth, seventh on the popularity poll. He would say, you know, he's like, Oh, baseball's better days are ahead of them. Like he didn't put down baseball. Like, Oh, baseball's not good. He said baseball. And he was like, he was an executive in minor league baseball. He would say baseball's better or best days are ahead of him, but he just thought pro football and the NFL was going to be just as big and it's just going to have, and like there's going to be stadiums with 80,000 people and it was just going to be just as big as major. Like he said that throughout definitely through the twenties and definitely throughout the 1930s, you know, finding those quotes are really like tremendous to find. Boy, if he could see it a hundred years later, boy, would yeah. he be, he'd be right on the mark there. I'm sure. <laughs> Wow. Um, so what were some of the things after when he got into the office of uh, leading the uh, Young National Football League at this point? Um, what were some of his accomplishments that uh, carried on uh, in, maybe in, even in today's game that we could uh, take a look at? Yeah, I mean, he uh, I mean, I always say um, I think I, I say that in, in the introduction that he, he's like the Henry Ford of the NFL, you know, uh, 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 and, and that's why, you know, I mean, he's not the only man that built the National Football League. Uh, uh, you know, he had some of the, you know, the other owners, but but he did build the foundation. A lot of the things that the NFL exists or sits on today was because of Joe Carr. You know, you know whether it's like his very first year, he does the Constitution and bylaws. Well, they didn't have that the first year. You know, so he writes, he helps writes the first Constitution bylaws that is still used today. There's still rules in that first customer you know they're still there he does the first standard player contract you know which was kind of based on baseball with the reserve clause now the reserve clause doesn't exist anymore you know tying a player to this but at that time that was like so he he writes the first player contract you know uh then he sets up territorial rights where once you had a franchise in the nfl you were protected you know another team couldn't come into your protected area and play a game and take the gate away from you. Cause the gate was the most important thing at the time. You know, it wasn't TV money. It wasn't, you know, uh, you know, sponsorships and naming rights on your stadium. It was people paying tickets to get to watch the games, you know? So um, then later, you know, in some of the other, you, you know, he, he, uh, he does the NFL draft with the owners. He helps with the other owners splitting the national football league into two divisions and forming the, the NFL championship game, which that was done in 1933. Well, the first 12 years, they didn't have a championship. They didn't have like a world series, you know, it was like whoever finished with the best record would be d- declared the champion. Well, the, you know, the owners and Joe Carr say, you know what, we need to do a better job. If we need two divisions, the two division winners and have this sort of winner take all like the world series. And, you know, um, so those are certain things. Uh, and then the other thing was happened in 1925 when Red Grange turned pro. You know, it's a huge thing. Red Grange was the biggest 
college player, you know, at football, you know, might have been of all time in Illinois in 1925. Well, he leaves school to go join the Chicago Bears, and the colleges didn't really like that. They hated it. they like, you know, this is why, you know, you know, you know, you got this negative image because, you know, kids are leaving college, you know, leaving school. And and so they formed a rule that was called the Red Grange rule where a player had to grad or, or their class had to graduate before they could play in the NFL. So if they if a kid played one year and then dropped out of college, he couldn't play for another three years in the NFL, you know, you know so. Um, which was a Red Granger, which that was challenged uh, roughly what 1989 when then college juniors could come out, you know, so that lasted a very long time. So all these things that, you know, and some of the issues, like I always talk to people and, and some of the issues that face the NFL now, well, they faced them in the twenties and thirties, you know, you know, you know, whether it's player movement and free agency, whether it's stadium issues, you know, like I said, in, in 1938, he developed, uh, a film called Champions of the Gridiron, which was like pre-NFL films, forty years. You know, like it was a, it really was a publicity film to say this is what the NFL is about. Here's the players. Here's the games. You know, so he, uh, and he was also the the guy who wrote the first NFL record and fact book. You know, you know, uh, it was called the official NFL Spalding Guide in the '30s. But now that was what's called. You know, so that's lasted almost eighty years. You know, so so all these building blocks you know that the league sits on you know was the a lot of them were developed and were handled in the 20s and 30s under joe carr's uh, presidency now i think uh, i mean that's great accomplishments i mean where, where would we be without uh, even half of those things not being done at, at that time um but i think one of the more interesting things that really showed uh joe carr's moxie and his um his staunchness to protect the game of football, I think had to come with that, uh, the whole championship, I believe 1927, the, the Pottsville Frankfurt, uh, I, I guess you'd call it almost like scandal uh, and the, the Chicago Cardinals thrown in there. But I, I thought that's uh, brilliantly, if you, you read uh, your book, um, it's brilliant what, what Joe Carr did. And uh, maybe you could help explain that out. What, what, yeah, uh, it, it's it's a it's a unique time period. You know, I mean, first you got to say Joe Carr. It was 1925, the fall of 1925, which also had the Red Grains turning pro also at the same time. <laughs> so he's dealing with these two heavy issues, and it was the Pottsville controversy. And uh, so you got to think 21, 22, through four. So this is barely his fifth season as as president. You know, this is very early in, in, in his career, you know, with the NFL. And uh, the short story of the Pottsville was Pottsville defeated the Chicago Cardinals late in the year. The season had not ended, but they had defeated the Chicago Cardinals and it looked like they were going to be NFL champs. All they had to do was really finish out the season. So the owner of Pottsville wants to actually have a big payday. I have the, the NFL champions, so I'm going to go play this game against the four horsemen, Notre Dame All-Stars, you know, in Philadelphia. Well, there was already a team in Philadelphia called the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. And like we mentioned earlier, there's territorial rights. There, You can't just, oh, I'm going to play games. And so Joe Carr, and there's proof, there's newspaper articles, and there's, uh, you know, there's a, a print of like where he told the Prospero owner, don't play this game. If you play this game, you will you will be suspended or something you, you're going to break a rule and you can't play. So, so the possible owner, Dr. Striegel 
he ignores that and he plays the game anyway because he wants to make money and or he thinks this is going to be a big payday and it turned out he did you know, like he broke even on the game you know against the Notre Dame All-Stars well as soon as that happened Joe Carr rendered the decision and said the Pottsville franchise is, is suspended you're ineligible for the title you broke a rule here's the consequences and I just think and during his entire nearly 20 years and, and almost in any of the, you know, pres, NFL presidents or commissioner's decision, I think it's one of the three or four, like, gutsy, tremendous decisions that's ever made. Like, he suspended a franchise, you, you're ineligible. And I feel sorry because people think Pottsville got robbed and everything, but it's totally the opposite. The proof is they broke a rule. They were warned not to play. They broke a rule. And they were suspended, so they're in. A, they were always ineligible to win the title because they were suspended because of them. They're breaking the rule. If he just doesn't play the game, they finish the season, and they're most likely they would have finished ahead of the Cardinals in the standings, and they would have been NFL champions. But because they were suspended, they were never eligible for the title. I think what gets a little confusing to some people is, and it's like this is there's a lot more layers to this. The following year, Red Grange and his manager pile started a rival league called the American football league. And they wanted to recruit Pottsville. So Carr allowed them to come back in the league because he didn't want to lose one of their better teams to the rival league. So everybody thinks, Oh, they're back in the league that maybe they're, they were the champions. Well, no, he suspended them at the end of the 25 season. So they were not eligible for the title. So that's kind of the short condensed version of, what is known as the like sort of the Pottsville controversy. Now, now they could have probably almost if they hadn't have played the game in Philadelphia and Frankfurt's uh, territory, if they would have just had a home game in Pottsville or wherever they were their home field was, they probably would have been all right doing that. It probably car wouldn't have come down on them. That would be oh, no, they probably, oh yeah, I think they would have been okay. I just think they played it, I believe it was at Shy Park in Philadelphia that facility had like 25,000 people, 30,000, but they didn't get nearly that. If they played in Pottsville, they would only got like three or 4,000 people, maybe 5,000, you know, but it would have been worth it because he didn't make the money that he thought he was because not, not a lot of people came out for the game, you know, in, in Philadelphia. So, uh, and then, like I said, it ended up costing the team the, the title. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, that definitely a very brave decision. Probably, uh, well, not, not popular in Pottsville a hundred years later, but uh, probably wasn't real popular across the country unless you, because even the, the Cardinals really didn't want to to take the title at that, that next meeting that they had in the spring. Uh, but they, uh, from what uh, Joe Ziemba was telling us, but finally they said, okay, well, basically we'll take it. You know, <laughs> they, they felt a little bit uh, awkward, I guess, maybe. Yeah. It was a reluctant acceptance. You know, like the league where it's like, you're the champion, you know, you, you're either going to accept it or not. So, um, but they are still, if you look at the record book, the Chicago Cards are the 1925 NFL champions. So. Okay. So where do you think, um, where, where did Joe Carr, uh, how, how did his, uh, he end his, his tenure as the, the president of the NFL? Well, I, I think, like I said, at, at the end of his, um, sort of, uh, it, it, it was a little cut short because he, he, he died of a heart attack in May of 1939, you know, and he was only uh, uh, 59 years old, you know, you know, so, you know, he still had some years ahead of him, you know, like that he had 
he had done, you know, from 1921 to 1939, you know, and the last NFL game he attended was the 1938 NFL championship. Game. You know, it was the Green Bay Packers played the New York Giants at the Polo Grounds, and I believe the attendance was well over 48,000. So almost nearly 50,000 people showed up at the NFL's premier event, you know, and that's what it was becoming at that time, the NFL championship game in 1938, you know, it's only in its what fifth, fifth, you know, rendition. And so the sport was becoming more popular. I, I, I think in 1939, you know, the fall after he passed away, they went over 1 million paid customers, you know, for the first time ever, you know, so at, at the time, like I said, it's very unfortunate that he passed away, you know, because he would have been able to see some of these things, you know, that the sport did, you know, you know, um, you know, you know, several years later, obviously World War II put a little bit of, of a slowness to it. But you see what what happened in the 1950s, the sport took off the TV, like, you know, whether he makes it there, you know, but he would have been able to see some of these sort of events and things that would have happened in, you know, in the forties and maybe even into the fifties, you know, if he lives long enough, you know, so, um, so near the end of his reign, like I said, the NFL was probably at its most popular point at the time. You know, like I said, the, the NFL championship game was, was a premier sporting event. It was sold out, you know, nearly 50,000 people, you know, it was, a, you know, uh, it had these great stars, you know, Don Hudson, you know, Sammy ball, you know, uh, you know, you know, Sid Luckman came in 1939, like you were getting these top flight athletes, you know, like I said, I talked about championship gridiron was a film, like a publicity film. Like he was thinking along those lines, uh, you know, uh, more publicity and promotion, you know, um, they had the first uh, uh, televised game. Now TV was really in its infancy in, in 38, 39, you know, you know, with the Eagles Brooklyn Dodger game that they tell a lot, but, these were, this was the path that the sport was going on, you know, especially you know, once it got through the forties and into the fifties, like this is what was going to happen. And he was setting it up for that, you know, like it was going to be this big city sport, you know, played by these great athletes, you know, and it's going to be a very popular sport. Now, now Chris, uh, your research on, on Joe Carr, I mean, probably you know him probably about as good as anybody that's still still on this earth today, uh, just from your research, because it's impeccable and your books are excellent. But what do you think if Joe Carr, if we could talk to Joe Carr today and we look back at what he did, what would he believe his greatest accomplishment was for pro football? Um, and that's a great question. And, uh, and I think you see it, like I said, I mean, like I said, he passed away in 1939. And I still think you see his greatest accomplishment today, you know, and that's why when I say he built, the, you know, sort of the building block and he's the Henry Ford of the NFL, it's because of his recruitment of financially capable owners to run big city franchises. You know, at the time when he became the president, 1921, the NFL was in all the small towns, you know, which is fine because that's where the lifeblood was. It was the Cantons, the Akron's, Dayton's, Columbus, you know, you had Rochester, you had Decatur, you know, you had Rock Island and Hammond, you know, you had all these small towns that were where the, the NFL or where the pro football was started. And that's where the lifeblood was. Well, by the mid twenties and into the late twenties, Joe Carr saw like, Hey, 
if the NFL was going to be a big city sport like Major League Baseball, we have to be in the big cities. And in order to be in the big cities, you needed financial, financially capable owners to run them. And he started in 1925. He already had George Hallis in Chicago. Uh, but Hallis told him, go do what you need to do. And he did. In 1925, he went to New York and he recruited Tim Mara. Well, we know that the Mara family still owns the New York Giants, you know, almost 100 years later. Uh, in 1932, he recruited George Preston Marshall to invest in the NFL franchise in Boston. And that franchise moved to Washington. You know, then in 1933, he recruits Burt Bell for a franchise in Philadelphia, the Eagles. Same year, he recruits Art Rooney for a franchise in Pittsburgh. In 1934, he recruits George Richards uh, to take over the Portsmouth franchise to be in Detroit. And then Cleveland in 1937. Well, there's your NFL. That's your legacy. Was you know, These teams have been the building block of the NFL for years, you know, you know, with only Green Bay as sort of the last of the small-town teams. And that's his legacy. Like, you know, now the NFL, you know, I mean, this was in the 20s and 30s. Well, ever since he did that, the NFL was always a big city sport. You know, you know, maybe it wasn't the TV money in Park Avenue at the Super Bowl with Roselle. Well, the building blocks in the 20s and 30s is why those things happened much later. You know, why the sport took off in the 50s, why it was great on on TV, why the merger or the AFL formed why the, you know, the merger happened and the Super Bowl was formed, like, and then you had expansion and you got bigger TV deals and, and now you got streaming the drafts three days. I mean, when the draft started under Joe Carr, you know, with help, you know, Burt Bell and the owner saying, we need the draft. Well, now because of that, it's a three day event and everybody loves it. And the ratings are great. The players love it. The, you know, the kids come in, you know, so, so I think his legacy is, is that is, you know what he saw that it could be a big city sport and these owners, these financially capable owners needed to be there to, to help run it. You know, you know, he was the guide from the league office kind of like now with Roger Goodell, but the owners also had to be there to be able to run these teams. Um, and like I said, this is 80 plus years and the league is still, it still runs that way. Yeah, what a tremendous uh, marketing machine it's really become. You know, and you can even sell the uh, Indianapolis uh, Underwear Olympics, uh, the combine, and get good, good ratings with that. Also, that's just uh, tremendous. You know, people love their football, that's for sure. So, well, Chris, I appreciate uh, you coming on and talking about this important figure in pro football history, Joe Carr. Um, now, maybe you could uh, tell us uh, the listeners. Where are they, the best places they can get uh, copies of your books? Because not only do you have pro football books on Joe Carr and the Columbus Panhandles, you have Dutch Clark, uh, Red Grange, um, and I, am I missing any? Uh, there's one on uh, Old Leather, which is like an oral history, too. So, okay. Yeah. Where, where's the best place people can get copies of your books? Yeah, I mean, my publisher is Rowan and Littlefield. So if you go R-O-W-M-A-N, Rowan.com. You can check the, the publisher's website. Uh, you can also get them on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So if you, you've got Amazon Prime or you know or, or Barnes and Nobles, uh, you can go on those websites uh, and check out the books too. 
Okay. Uh, now, do you have anything coming down the pipeline that we can look forward to or anything that's uh, coming out soon or even, you know, articles? I know you, you do a lot on the Pro Football Journal. We were talking with John Turney just about a month ago. We had him on and he uh, very complimentary of your work and rightfully so. It was right about the time you had the, um, I think, the Red Grange uh, candy bar uh, article in there, which was excellent, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm always you know, trying to keep uh, one one project ahead and stuff. Uh, now, on the book front, uh, my next project is a book on Bronco Nagurski, um, which I actually just finished and turned in uh, this month in October. Oh, <laughs> so congratulations. Be, yeah, so that'll be out next fall, like next football season. So if you want to lo- learn a little bit more uh, about Bronco and the, and the Bears and, and, and his career, uh, that'll be next season. And now, Pro Football Journal, uh, I'm trying to keep up. On, and I think the last thing I wrote was about, and that was another Nesser article about Ted and Charlie Nesser. It was the 100th anniversary of the first father-son. See, it's like you know, Ted Nesser played until he was almost 40 years old. Well, he played with his son in, 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 during the 1921 season, and they're the only father-son duo to ever play in the NFL. So uh, uh, so that article went up um, uh, I think that was the last week of September is when they had the anniversary date of that. So uh, 100 years, 100 years ago, this, this past like September 23rd, 24th. Wow. So, uh, well, we sure appreciate you and appreciate all you're doing to preserve football history. We love your work. I uh, love your research. It's very thorough and factual. And uh, we appreciate you coming on here and sharing with us here at Pigskin Dispatch. So thank you very much, Chris. Oh, no, I appreciate Darren, especially uh, on, on Joe Carr's uh, birthday. So, so happy birthday, Joe Carr. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, 
the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.